Today, I sit down with our generation's most popular NBA player on the planet, not naming Michael, Kobe, and LeBron. So popular that in 2012, the Global Language Monitor declared his movement had met its criteria to be considered an English language word. We're talking Linsanity. And yes, with 30% of NBA fans and revenue coming from Asia-Pacific markets, Jeremy Lin is not only a insanely talented point guard in the NBA, I wrote that, but has positioned himself fantastically across multiple markets in the U.S. and ASPAC. He's a sophisticated marketer, has equity positions in several companies, but is inspired by his off-court endeavors, starting with the Jeremy Lin Foundation. I'm telling you, he's as cerebral as any professional athlete I've spoken with. He's a great person, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Enjoy. When us men go out to shop, especially for new trends, we run into some common problems. In store, we either have trouble locating the men's department, finding out what we want, and if we do, it's often not in our size. When we order online, we may think we know what's hip, and there's a hint it's probably not. But when we think we find it and we order it, often it arrives and doesn't fit. Bombfell is an easier way for men to get better clothes. You can complete a simple questionnaire and are then matched one-to-one with a dedicated personal stylist. When you sign up, you pay zero dollars. That's right, you only pay for the clothes you keep, period. Bombfell is the only styling service that does not charge any fees to work with them. Here's how the process works. You go online and you sign up. You set up your order, and you choose between items you want delivered, the style and fit. I chose tight pants, fitted button-down t-shirts, my personal style at the moment. Then you get a preview email of what's to come, and shortly thereafter, your package will arrive. Everything is fully personalized. Each piece has been handpicked for you by your own stylist. That stylist will then email you her or his selections, after which you'll have 48 hours to make any changes or even cancel it altogether. You're in total control. Personally, I went through the process, got exactly what I was looking for, and was very pleased with the quality of fabrics and the selection from my stylist. So here's what I was able to pull off for you suiting up listeners. Since, and this is in parentheses, I think fashion is part of what I do, I was able to negotiate with Bombfell to get a $25 offer for all of you listeners. That's the best offer of any show across podcasts, and I'm proud of that. It's $25 off your first purchase. Here's how you do it. Go to bombfell.com forward slash Rabel. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash Rabel. Bombfell.com slash Rabel. It's Bombfell. Open and clothes. So I've got our first NBA guest on the show. We're both located in Brooklyn. We've previously shared publicists, <laughs> both, both, both vested in a common digital media company. We enjoy social media, enjoy having fun, we enjoy joking. Uh, you've taken your jokes primarily more to YouTube than me, but I will talk about that in a little bit. And we come from Christian upbringings, but from different coasts. So, Jeremy, I want you to first talk about growing up in San Francisco, choosing basketball, excelling at it, and ultimately why you chose to go east to Harvard. Um, Growing up in Cali was pretty much everything you thought it could be. It was 75 and sunny every single day, always playing, (laughs) playing outdoors. I just assumed the world was like Cali, just like amazing (laughs) weather, you know. and, uh, you know, I loved playing basketball and soccer. And actually, soccer was probably, like, I might have been better at soccer and even my favorite sport at one point. And then in Cali, you had to choose between basketball and soccer for the winter season. So um, I just felt like there's something inherently wrong with playing, like, 90 minutes of soccer and then, like, the score being 0-0 at the yeah. end. And then like, <laughs> you get a draw. I was like, oh, no, that's definitely not happening. Yeah. So I went with basketball. Um, and then I ended up on the East Coast um, not by design or choice, but really because it was like last option. Um, like I was begging the Stanford team to let me play there. I wanted Cal and UCLA, anybody in back then the Pac-10 to recruit me to play basketball. Um, but the real, the only real offers or interests I was getting was from you know Harvard and MIT. So I kind of just chose between those two. And yeah, um, why do you think that was? You were the Northern California Player of the Year in high school. Yeah, I mean. There's obviously, you know, the race component, which has been brought 
you know, into discussion a lot and has been, I mean, on paper or just from looking at me, it doesn't seem like I would some, be somebody to uh, who would excel. And then I also think, um, like, I was super raw and underdeveloped. Like, I was 170 and, like, couldn't do a pull-up, could barely bench press 135, could barely squat 135. So I was very raw and I had never really lifted in my life and I, everything was about me just looked like I would struggle at the next level. And so I've always, like... I always have known race was a big part of it, um, but I've also known that there are other factors. But then at the end of the day, like, yeah, winning NorCal Player of the Year and California Player of the Year, I just did feel like, yeah, maybe there's, uh, you know, being slighted and being underlooked. Um, but, hey, it worked out, man. Your, your parents are from Taiwan. Yeah. And growing up in one of the more socially progressive states in California where there's you think now having experience on the East Coast, there are fewer kind of racial barriers in, in playing basketball and, and, and how would your parents kind of help you navigate through that process? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Like when I was young, I would say more of the barriers were probably from Asian Americans themselves yep. in terms of like, why would you, hmm. like my parents got a lot of criticism. Like, why would you let your kids or, you know, play that much basketball? Why would you spend that much money? Um, you know, on these travel teams, et cetera. And then I think as I got older, like, and got better, like, by the time I got to maybe, like, ninth grade and above, I started to experience people outside of California. Obviously, in California, we have so many Asian people. So, you know, it is rare for an Asian to be playing basketball at a high level in California, but it wasn't rare for Asians to be playing basketball in California. Like, if you go on the streets, play pickup or whatever, like, you'll see them. It was when we started traveling or when I went to the East Coast, when I went to these other areas where they had never seen an Asian on the court and maybe some of them have never seen an Asian before, period. Yeah. And that's when it was just like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, and all that other stuff. (laughs) You, uh, I I always tell kids when when there was a moment that clicked for me in lacrosse was I, I always knew and was told by my coaches and parents that I had to practice against the wall lacrosse style and yours would probably be shooting uh, hoops and, and, and because that was the only way to improve. But then there was a moment when I was, I think it was in ninth grade where I practiced because I wanted to and it was just really fun to do yeah. that. And that's when I noticed all the growth from a technical component yeah, I mean, it sounds like you didn't lift that much. I didn't lift that much in high school either. It's different now. These kids now are yeah. all like benching and squatting a ton of weight <laughs> at a young age. But, you know, from a skill component, what would you say helped you perform at a high level? Was it more just passion and obsession? Or were you really focused on technique? And how did you go about that? I would say it was probably... When I was, like, up until 11th grade, it was probably just pure passion. Yeah. Like, I just played way more than everybody else. I'd play, I would, I would you know, play during lunchtime sometimes, um, and then, like, I would go to practice, and then I'd play for, like, three to four basketball teams at once, and then after all, like, I might have, like, three practices in one day, and then after that, I would go to the YMCA until, like, 10 at night. So I'd just play yeah. all day. But it wasn't, like... S- crazy technical i would say the only thing that was really technical was the coaches that i played for yeah. like during those practices they were very like fundamental based um but then it's kind of like you what you're saying about having it click was when um i got to high school and i was too slow and um when i first got there i was too slow and too short and i asked my coach like how i could you know get to the basket and so he gave me some drills and it started to work and then, you know, that's when I started to see, like, all right, now not only is it just I'm playing all the time, but now I know how to, like, focus my energy and my, like, the calories that I'm burning. Like, what do yeah. I do with that? How do I make that efficient? And I think that became, like, an obsession of, like, learning how to push myself, learning where to push myself. And then, like, the more success I got, I felt like the more it fed my, like, inner desire to want to improve. Yeah. Sounds like that inner desire has a lot to do with like a cerebral process yes. of understanding, okay, this is what I'm really skilled at. Now, if I add these, these, this type of instruction and angles and movement, and then get to me, a, get me to a place where as your career progressed, you were undrafted, you played in the D league, you went overseas into China, and then you ended up back West with golden state. 
and then eventually to the Knicks in 2012, which we'll talk about like when sanity and all that stuff. Cause I think it's really interesting from a business component, yeah. but I'd imagine things got really serious, right. As they do with professional sports. And you kind of talk to athletes about getting back to that moment of playing for enjoyment. Um, that transition, was it always a goal for you to no matter what, whether you're not drafted going out for Golden State, playing D-League, going overseas, was it always getting to the NBA or was it more experience and process? Um, I, <laughs> I, when I was younger, I wasn't very much of an experience or process yeah. type guy, yeah. you know? Like, yeah. it was just like, this is what I want and I will not stop until I get it. And that for me was the NBA. Um, so it was really always like, I was always like, you know, I had a one-track mind um, coming out of college. I, I even told my agent, like, I don't want you talking to any overseas teams. Like, he ended up having discussions because that's his job as an agent. But mm -hmm. in terms of as it relates to me, I was like, I don't want anything to do with any overseas teams until, like, I know I can't make it in the NBA. Um, but I did feel like there were definitely times where because I was so one-track minded and ambitious and, uh, you know, whatever, like, obsessive about it, um, it did kill like the enjoyment of the game mm -hmm. at some point. And I had to like learn how to really balance like, I'm going to enjoy and live in the moment, but then I'm also going to chase my dream or my goal. And like, how do you balance those two things and like find peace in, in, in it? Yeah. And you've said that your spirituality has helped you with that. Yeah. Keeping perspective in your relationship with God. Yeah. Everything it has been everything for me. Yeah. Can you talk about being evangelical Christian? Yeah, I think for me it was just like, um, you know, it was that point in New York um, where the first two to three, you know, the first two weeks of insanity was like the coolest thing ever. But, you know, the following two weeks after that was kind of like a burden. Like I had to be what everybody wanted me to be and live up to what everyone else wanted me to um, live up to and I felt like that's when like it was like a month after the first breakout game that I was like dude I'm like I'm not happy and I was like man success is so fleeting hmm. like reaching certain peaks like we see like we see that in sports all the time we see like the greatest winners in in so many different sports and what do they want like they want more like i guarantee you tom brady next season is not going to be like well at least i won it last year so i'm, right. I'm chilling you know right like it's that never enough pandemic yeah. yeah and then you know i'm sure as an athlete in a like supreme athlete elite athlete like you know like there's like a chip on your shoulder there's always a next, another challenge like you just naturally are wired to be like that like what's the next thing i can take over mm -hmm. um and then just getting back to my faith was like all right, well, like God had to really teach me pry some things out of my control because I was trying to control everything, trying to hold on to everything. And he was showing me like, hey, like even if you don't have a starting position or like a global brand or, you know, even if you aren't beloved by all the fans, like I'm still going to be enough for you in terms of just like me, my relationship with you, salvation, like it's going to be good enough. It's going to be more than good enough. And I think like getting to that point, which is something I still wrestle with at times, but like yep. learning to figure that out was like, Hey, like there's a deeper sense of peace and purpose and joy, even if I'm not achieving what I once was achieving. Yeah. And I think when you get to that point, it's like you figured it out. Yeah. That's, that's definitely true. It sounds a bit like D. Smith, who we had on the podcast, NFLPA executive director, and he tells his players that um, football is what they do, not who they are. Mm -hmm. And that balance, that mindfulness, I think we're seeing a, a big pop in, in, in mindfulness across all industries in, in today's modern world with everything that's going on overseas and politics and religion and, and people are meditating and trying to uh, clear their minds, be more present. And I think that's the ultimate challenge for athletes, though, is that we're so uh, we're so measured by our results, immediate results. Mm -hmm. That you're right; you were encouraged to get the next one and forget about the last win, win the next championship, score the next point, and at all costs. So, you know, given that it's the life that we've chosen, and you and you mentioned still battling with it, and I do myself. Um, 
you know, what, what are you structuring? Like what's your day to day? Like, I know you're coming right in from practice and, and how are you then balancing each day? You're talking about from like a spiritual standpoint, from or? a spiritual and plane, right? Cause yeah. I think, I think, uh, once we, once you're on the court, once I'm on the field, uh, you, you just become the athlete. Yeah. So, so I'm thinking, at least I've been trying to work myself on, on balancing or having better balance around that. And that helps with yeah. that kind of juggling act that we're talking about. Definitely. I think, um, a couple of things, I mean, I, I, I like to do devotionals. I think those are like, you know, um, it's like food for me, you know, like I need food every day. I need my devotional. So I try to do that in the morning, read the Bible and pray. And then at night I try to read like a Christian book and then like kind of think about the day or what happened. And sometimes I have different topics to pray about. So like Monday might be, I pray for myself, Tuesday, I pray for my family and so on and so forth. Um, and then I try to like respect and honor a Sabbath in terms of like one day out of the week for those 24 hours, I'm not working out or thinking or doing anything basketball related. Cause you know, as I'm getting older, it's like, I might not be able to spend as much time on the court, but I can spend more time watching film or doing Mm -hmm. other things. And it's like, I can still like, if I'm constantly like immersed and obsessive and like thinking nonstop, nonstop, nonstop about it, I feel like that will, I'll burn out really is what's going to happen, which has happened in the past. Um, and for so, you personally or for yeah, yeah, like I've burned out, like after certain seasons, it's just like, I can't do this, get, get away from basketball. Or even during seasons, there's been times where it's like, man, like, I don't know, dude, like, you know, I can't do this anymore. Um, and so uh, I just try to do that. And then I try to surround myself with people who I really enjoy being around. Um, and so I work out a lot with my brother. I have my trainer. When my older brother's there, I always work out with them. And And then the people that we work out with, we always try to like, kick it, grab food after, like, you know, just chill. And like, and I think having balance and like having relationships and like doing these things like prevents me from becoming like, you know, OD, like psychotic about it. Yeah. Cause I think to be great, you do have to be somewhat psychotic. Oh yeah. And then obsessive. obsessive. Yeah, for sure. But then like you had to figure out like, and that's where some people don't understand. It's like, dude, like maybe we're just wired differently, but like, sometimes I can't turn the switch off. So it's like, I have to find ways to turn it off or like to like simmer the like fire inside of me to want to be great or whatever. Yeah. Well, what's great too about athletes is that we back our way into thought leadership on certain other, uh, certain areas, uh, that, that, that broaden out for all people, no matter what they do. And those being, uh, nutrition and fitness and recovery, which are core components to continuing, uh, you know, self-improvement performance at a high level. So from a nutritional standpoint, I wanted to ask you if there's anything specific that you've done or, or you've evolved, uh, particularly in basketball, I mean, you guys burn so many calories and it's a hardwood sport, which for, for the life of me, when I see guys that are playing 18 years in the NBA, I just don't get it <laughs> because you know this is an impact sport on yeah. hardwood yeah you know I mean, we talk about like swimmers and the longevity in golf and and just like even soccer over in europe being on natural grass versus artificial turf and the impact that i feel on my joints being on artificial turf so i would imagine you guys have to be really thoughtful around nutrition and and the, st- and the type of fitness you do off the off the court or during the off season and the recovery yeah, that's uh, and it's you know escalated even more because in, in the NBA you're playing 82 times. It's like how, four times a week, basically. Like, how do you prepare your body so that you can be primed? And it's like, yeah, nutrition, sleep, um, like you know, ice bath, and they have all these different tools. And then um, you know, soft tissue is like there's so many different things like stretching and so yeah as you as as every you know nba player gets older we kind of figure out like what works for my body and um it really is during the season it really is a 24-hour job like like when 10 o'clock rolls around you start thinking about like all right counting the hours what time i need to get up how many hours i'm gonna get how many hours are you getting uh i try to get nine every night nine every night i try to it's great doesn't always work out Um, and, and there's obviously with the travel schedule, sometimes it's like remotely, like it's like not even close. It's impossible. There's some nights where you're inevitably going to get five, six and, um, 
So yeah, but and what about uh, trying to do all that? patterns around competition? Are you are you guys playing at night for the most part? You guys have a specific schedule of trying to eat three full meals or sometimes four. Um, for so for a typical game day, we might play at seven or seven thirty. Try to get a breakfast in before shoot around. After shoot around, uh, I try to get in like maybe like a a smaller meal, and then so I'll eat at like ten. I'll eat at twelve. And then around three or four, I'll eat again, another small meal. Mm -hmm. And then the game's at seven, and then I'll eat, like, a monstrous meal after the yeah. game. Do you have trouble falling asleep after games? Oh, my goodness, yes. It, it's, it's, it's an adrenaline rush. Yeah. I, I remember playing in college. We would always play at 1 o'clock, and I would just be so tired by 10. Yeah. And the game, so the game would end at three and I kind of figured there would be this five to six hour runoff of adrenaline that started happening, but I didn't notice it because we had afternoon games and I'd fall asleep my normal time. When I went pro and we started playing at seven, eight o'clock, yep. I have trouble getting to bed before three. Yeah. Cause you have that, then that five hour release of adrenaline. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, it like, that's a super interesting thing that I wish like we talked about more as athletes, but like even like, for us, like caffeine is one, or like pre-workout drinks are mm -hmm. like really big in the NBA because there's so many nights where guys are just super tired or hurting. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them will, you know, a lot of the athletes will take these drinks and that affects your sleep too. Cause yeah. now you have adrenaline, now you have that caffeine. How much caffeine did you take? Like what time did you take it? Like what is your body used to? And like, there's been times where like I couldn't sleep till like five. Yeah. It's like, because I'm so wired and, and it is like, it really, there's like a, a science and an art behind all of that. And yeah. like what time, how much the dosage, like weaning off of it, like all these different things. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I, I definitely know, like I can't play a game and go to sleep. I usually have to play video games, read and do like eat and do a bunch of stuff. And then like, I'll chill out. But ultimately, you know, we, we as for the most part as athletes, you do whatever you, you have to do to be ready for the game. Yeah. So if, this, if you've scheduled all the way out and then like you're still tired for some reason, you're doing that pre-workout or you're taking a bunch of caffeine because you have to perform. Oh, no question. Yeah. Four games in five nights, pre-workout. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about 2012 when you came to the Knicks and started playing well. Um, when sanity happened, you know, led the league in jersey sales, was the first New York player to be on back-to-back -back Sports Illustrated covers. Um, just like tons of press. Endorsement articles coming in. There were eBooks being written online about you. Um, I, I saw a stat that the, the number of Asia Pacific Americans in New York City alone is around 400, 450,000, which is a larger number than like Cleveland, Miami, and some of the <laughs> other NBA cities wow. total. So there were like viewing parties for you and stuff like that. What was that experience like out of the gates? It was, uh, it was like surreal, but like I wish like there was another word beyond surreal because that's like what I would use to describe it. Um, and like there's so many things. The thing is there's so many things that are going on off the court, like these viewing parties and things like that and these eBooks that are being written that like I had no idea about. Like I was just going through it. I was trying to focus on the game, focus on my team. And like, there was a lot of outside noise and like I was literally putting together pieces of what had happened or like in my mind, it was like I had such a small concentrated picture and I was not able, cause I was blocking myself from like listening and reading and seeing what was going on outside. And like, it was like even three years after, I was still like putting pieces into this big picture in my mind to really like, picture like what insanity was hmm. for the world and like i'm still learning that every day through like conversations with people and like hey you affected me this way you affected me that way and it's like dude as athletes like that's the last thing that we're kind of thinking about when we're like trying to play and prime ourselves for and, and like when you do well it's like you enjoy it that night and then the next day it's like next game yeah. you know and so you're like so like onto you know flipping the page constantly so it was surreal in one sense but then it was also like intense intense like focus because i had never been in that position before and i wanted to like make sure i continue to do well yeah i think that's really interesting the case for a number of athletes that have fully hit that mainstream light is that to get to that point, they had visualized that level of success. Just like you were so driven to make the NBA, I'm sure it wasn't, it didn't stop at making the NBA. You were yeah. probably dreaming in the backyard of performing, whether it be at MSG or 
out in Golden State at a high level consistently like you did, but you don't anticipate then the impact. Um, and so the, the social impact, though, that, that, that went far beyond just being a mainstream player had, had a lot to do with, you talk about Asia Pacific and, and the basketball marketplace, which some statistics say that represents from 20 to 30% of NBA fans. And you became um, you know, that role model for a lot of Asia Pacific players. Um, you then you know, take those steps to, to mentorship and you have this foundation backed by your, your Christianity and, and, and your humble upbringing. Um, and, and I would argue that fewer people were prepared to take that on as you were. Yeah, I mean, it was... But it was still hard. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if I was prepared. I always knew what I wanted to do, but actually the actual execution and thing, like, oh man, there's so many mistakes we made, so many things I learned. And it was just like, kind of what we were talking about before we started the podcast too, is just like, we envision like being great at our sport, but we don't really envision being like CEOs of these little companies that we run or like being PR, like, publicist for ourselves or Mm -hmm. like learning the marketing or like how do you explore like we have never been taught how to do these things and so like you're figuring all this stuff out on the fly and this is every athlete that has to go through that like how do I manage my team and how do I find the right people to listen to and how do I like create this impact and this legacy that I want to create and at the same time like never being educated or having any work experience in it. And I think that's kind of what I was trying to figure out. And I knew I wanted to do something with the foundation. I always said that. And I had started it. Luckily, I had started it the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were many mistakes that were made. And um, there was a lot of... But like now I feel like there's like these unique experiences in business and in philanthropy and in marketing and in esports and social media that like I've just been kind of baptism by fire forced to learn on the fly and it's yeah. been like amazing too it's been an amazing ride yeah it's, it's a lot like what entrepreneurs say just you know when you take that jump you're just immediately drinking from the fire hose and it's just mm-hmm. you can't stop it it's just coming right at you yeah and and so i think what i'd be curious in first is is as you approached this ceo role of managing everything that's coming inbound trying to play put playing aside because you did that really well how did you go about kind of delegating with your agency your publicist uh, managers um, you know you should, I'm sure I'm sure your family was involved to a certain extent and was that as much of a, a learning process in getting those uh, those kind of executives underneath you as CEO in place yeah that I mean like you know, my, so the route I chose to go with was I wanted to stay with the people that had been loyal to me and proven their loyalty to me because during that time, a lot of people were changing around me and a lot of people that I thought I could trust like were doing things that like were kind of shady. And so hmm. I told myself, like, I'm going to stick with my friends and my families and like the people who have proven to be like not about that life and like actually cared for me as a person. And the problem is they weren't all like, like my family and like, they didn't go, like they didn't go to school and envision themselves becoming like business managers or like business developers for an athlete. Like, yeah. so they're learning on the 60 fly. page contracts coming in from it, brands. Exactly. Yeah. And like, and, and then like this, so, I mean, there's just, you know, it's been one of the most rewarding and challenging things. And like, I don't know anything personally about marriage or like having kids, but I would say that like this was probably like gives me at least a snippet of what marriage or having kids will be like in that it's like extremely rewarding because you accomplish these things and you do these things and you go to quote unquote war with people that you love and your family members and people that you're close to. But it's so challenging because you have to learn how to communicate, do business, like you not like you have to learn how to because you're going to offend each other all the time mm-hmm. like choosing or going with one route like naturally offends somebody else you know it's like a referee like making calling a charge will offend the person who thought it was a block and vice versa and so there's been a lot of challenges in terms of off the court like it's been you know almost as hard as some of the stuff on the court in terms of like 
figuring that piece out and figuring out which voice to listen to or like how much to listen to this voice or hmm. what position to put this person in. And that has been a, a, a continual process of learning, but very, very rewarding. Yeah, I got to imagine that, oh, I, I can absolutely see where you're coming from. I do business with my brother, Mike, very often, and, and we've always been flagged, as I'm sure you were, don't mix family and business. Yeah, and everyone says that. Yeah, and because you have such a personal relationship, and you're right, communication, having those hard, hard conversations and being thick-skinned enough. Yep. Is, is that those interpersonal skills that, that you're probably referencing and developing. So loyalty uh, amidst everything that was coming in, particularly in New York, yeah. um, it, it you know, sat atop of, of your needs and then you kind of positioned those that you trusted as gatekeepers yeah. and then enlisted more sophisticated people to look at endorsement deals that were coming in initially that you were saying no to. Yeah. And you had said no specifically around, you know, wanting to keep your focus on the court, but we're talking tens of millions of dollars in endorsements. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't <laughs> want to regret be- that at all. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't because I, I, I never wanted to be like, you know, and that's one thing my parents really taught me is just like, don't be driven by money. Um, so I've never really like, and it, it, I'm not saying this in like a douche way, but like, I I've just have never been that like I just have never cared that much about money. Mm-hmm. Um, God has blessed me with a lot of it and more than I ever thought I could like earn. Um, but like I was really happy growing up and we didn't have that much and so I was just kind of used to that. But um, I don't regret it at all. Like I always told myself, like I want to be real. I want to be authentic. Like I don't want to endorse something that I'm just like uh, like here do this, eat this, buy this, and I don't do it myself. Like, I've, And so it just doesn't seem right to me. Um, it's something that I kind of like owe to my fans too. Um, yeah. Like if they're gonna be spending money or spending time on something, it has to be something that like I actually believe in. Um, so, and at the same time too, like my passion was never to be like on billboards or commercials or like my passion has always been to hoop and like doing six hour photo shoots nonstop so that you're so tired that you can't even get on the court and like, you know, being, having so many off the court ventures that like you can't keep your focus on the court. Like Mm -hmm. that's always been like, man, I worked so hard to get to this point. Wouldn't it be kind of silly to like then lose everything I've worked for because I'm so focused on the thing that something that I wasn't like passionate about from the beginning. Like it just seemed like a really like silly way to kind of, um, you know, jeopardize everything that I had put so much hard work into. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the court with sports psychology um, and, and going back to you know, probably just having a huge target on your back during that time of insanity. I, I remember watching you go off game after game and then the subsequent team that you'd face point guard was like, I'm going to shut him down. Uh, how dynamic was that? you know, playing a team game, yet the attention being on an individual. Um, and, and maybe what were some of the guys on your team or some mentors of yours that, that helped you that had experience in the NBA? Yeah, it, it was hard because, the, you know, like the reason why I never played individual sports is because I don't like individual sports. Like I love the teamwork. So hmm. having all the success and sometimes failure attributed to one player has always been like, you know, something that's been difficult for me to accept just being like, I love being about the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time, like uh, one of the guys, Landry, I was really close with Landry and Steve Novak, but they had never really, they hadn't been in the league as long. Um, not as long as me, they, they were young in the league, but they hadn't had as many experiences. So they're kind of going through it with me. But yeah. then with Jared Jeffries was kind of, the older vet that like I always ask them questions about from like how to manage your finances to like how to make business decisions to like X's and O's on the court. And he was the guy who always kind of told me like, dude, like don't be naive. Like these people are out to get you. Like a lot of people will turn on you when they can. Hmm. And if you give them a reason to, they will. And so he taught me or like allowed me to kind of see the world from a different perspective. Cause I was going into it like, what? No way. Like no one would ever hurt me. No one mm-hmm. would ever like, no, the media would never write something bad about me. Um, you know, the, the organizations would never turn their back on me. And I just had learned, you know, and so he was teaching me 
you know, a lot of kind of just how the business world and the industry works. And I think he was really valuable in, in helping me there. Yeah, it's like, a, it's just paranoia, right? Yeah. I think I think we see it with NBA players, NFL players, MLB players. I mean, kind of name the big four, big five sports uh, because of how commercialized the game and the player and the entertainer is. Uh, you look at like 30 for 30s broke and stuff like that. But But I actually think most entrepreneurs are just as paranoid about their intellectual property, yeah. about their ideas, yeah. um, about competitors in the space. And, and I think that your strategy around creating that infrastructure of loyalty with your family and then also everything that, that, that was coming across your desk had to be authentic to who you were. You know, you're not going to spend time on six-hour photo shoots and on endorsements. Uh, you started creating your own media too. And that's a that's a really uh, interesting strategy, one that I've adopted and tried to follow after you as well. And particularly on YouTube, what was it about that platform uh, that that has attracted you to it so much? And you know, probably there's a life in in, in LA for you <laughs> <laughs> in big films. I think the, the the first thing was that I had to really like. I was really hurt initially by some of the things that happened in the media. Hmm. And I remember there are times when like in New York, right? Um, I don't really know what, uh, some of them, but yeah, when I was uh, during the time of insanity, because there were times when there would be articles that come out about, you know, Oh, I went here and I did this. And, um, like I was drinking this and talking to this girl and it was completely false. And I was with my family and they knew I was with them. Um, so it was just completely made up. And then there are other times I remember like where they were talking about my contract and I remember this, like I was waiting for my next contract after the Knicks, um, like the one that the Rockets were offering me. And I had not, I didn't know what the contract was. And my agents were talking downstairs and I was two floors above in the hotel just waiting. And I just turned on the TV and they were saying like, oh, this is the reported offer. And Jeremy Lin thinks this, this and this about the offer. And like when I started hearing that and seeing that, I was like, you know what? Like so much of like a lot of what's going on is kind of like lies and that it creates uh, uh it, it creates a perception that I'll never be able to change. Like a lot of like the things even today that I'm still trying to fight are like, you know, perceptions that were or misconceptions that were created by a third party person who has really like very minimal insight into my life. And that's when I was like, hmm. you know what? I really want to control my narrative and show who I really am. Kind of going back to the authenticity piece, which is, you know, for me, it was like, I could tweet and I could Facebook, but YouTube, you can really create videos. You can really show like my personality or what I believe in or the things that really make me like tick, like the things I love doing. And so we created, you know, the last pick or yeah. um, how to get in Harvard and all these random like YouTube videos. And we felt like, hey, this is like kind of who I am. Like when I'm hanging with my boys, this is who I am. Right. Yeah, the, the, the message around the modern athlete and, and sort of why I even created this podcast was and similar to what you see with Uninterrupted and the Players' Tribune, although those both have raised a ton of money and yeah. are commercializing in their own respect. But the, the proliferation of social media has, has really gifted athletes an opportunity to take control back. And that's a, that's a side of the sport that I, that I don't get exposed to, fortunately, in lacrosse, is, is the, the, the sources have told us that Jeremy Lin thinks this of his upcoming contract. Yeah. But strategy for YouTube. So you do stuff like Lin endorsements. Oh, yeah. We've been talking about <laughs> endorsements. But like, yeah, a lot of it is you know, how, to, how to fit into the NBA. You know, talk about these themes and, and the, the comedic side and the creative side of yourself and, and, and you know, putting production crews around you to, to, to bring it to life. Yeah, um, you know, I have, I, I have one guy, um, Josh Fan, who, who helps me full time um, with a lot of the social media stuff. And he's also one of like my closest friends. So it's very natural. Like hmm. he knows, he knows my personality. He knows how I think like he sees me when all the cameras are not around. And so he's like, his whole thing has always been, even to this day is like, how do we bring more of that out? And he's still trying to get me to bring more of that out. Cause when I am in public or when the cameras are on, I turn, I, I just subconsciously, I turn a lot of it off. Like yeah. who I am, like I turn it off. And so, um, 
you know, he's been like, Hey, you know, sometimes I'll have an idea or sometimes he'll have an idea. And then like, we'll start exchanging ideas, brainstorming, and then like it'll turn into a Lindor Smith or something like that. And then we also have people like with Lindor Smith, we had uh, Wong Fu who helped us out and we had the last pick, we had Jubilee Project. And so these are people that we know and trust and like we've, we're creating like story, storylines and storyboards and all, you know, all this stuff to be able to like, Hey, we think this is like a direction that we want to go in. Yeah. And, and and you, joined whistle sports which was at the time a multi-channel network now more of a a modern digital agency um and the deal that you structured was was uh partially equity based because you got in at an early stage um was that something that um you know you feel like you've learned through this ceo position as i'm calling you and and managing (laughs) the jeremy lynn brand on on court off of it and and obviously, the guys that are that are that are running that business, Jeff Urban and John West, are really sophisticated guys coming from the brand side. Actually, now getting into media, uh, your approach there. Yeah, I think um, you know that's something that like you know I've had a lot of people. Um, you know, my manager Patricia and um, my mom and and Alan, my cousin and and Josh. Like we all work together and like. We started, you know, we we first started off with traditional endorsements, which we still do, and which really still have a purpose and a, and a place. But then we we're also thinking like, there's certain, you know, passion projects, or there's certain things where I could see myself really long term, like being heavily involved in. And it's like, these are the ones that I want equity in because their success is tied to like. I'm incentivized to really invest and put forth my effort into this company. And I'm also hoping for this company to succeed. And when you create that type of partnership, I think you create a, another level of authenticity mm-hmm. um, versus like, hey, here's X amount of dollars. Just talk and pretend like you like, you know, whatever. So it's like if right. Whistle Sports is like here, like pretend like you like us <laughs> be like, all right. Yeah. But like if I actually believe in Whistle Sports, I'm <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, I want the equity yeah. and I want to be involved. Yeah. Um, so I do think like, and, and, and that's also a more long-term approach too, mm-hmm. you know, like, cause these companies will hopefully last for a long time. And like, I think one thing for, for every athlete is like, how do I make sure that I am creating like stable revenue, like, for life because you know the average mba career is like 4.5 years or five years or something like that so it's like you have a short window to make a lot of money but then like beyond that like you know one of the things i think about it's the same thing for my foundation is like i want sustainable out like revenue so that i can constantly give through my life like i don't want to just give a lot until i'm 35 and i retire Mm -hmm. and i can't do anything anymore because i have nothing left like i want to i'd rather like learn how can i continue to like have this revenue and every month I have this revenue and I know what I want to do with it. I know like what organizations I can support. Like I know where I want to go with that. And that I think is when you see real impact um, and you see more long-term impact. Yeah. That's like legacy. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Yao Ming when you were growing up being, being, uh, being referenced in that category. And I suppose when you're done playing, uh, the next group of successful uh, ASPAC players will be referenced as the Jeremy Lins, the next generation of Jeremy Lins. And I think what you're positioning yourself around the platform Weibo, which I'm not as familiar with, uh, but it's more of like a hybrid Facebook, Twitter platform based in China that has roughly half a billion users and 300 million daily actives. Yeah. So you're there. You have 5 million followers roughly there. I mean all these platforms in place and that's creating legacy, but also controlling messaging and, and, mm-hmm. and positive messaging that, that you want to kind of make sure that the younger generation is living under. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. That's a very, that's like a very, very good way of saying it is just like, that's what I want my, like right now, that's how I can have like a small little footprint on this earth and like have a small little impact is like controlling the message, saying what I want to say, and targeting and, and having a strategy. And like, you know, that's where I like the, when I first went through Linsanity, everything was reactionary. Like it was just like, 
there's a flood of things coming in and I'm mm-hmm. just trying to pick and choose and hold on to one as everything's flying by me. Now it's more like proactive. Like I want to be here. I want to be in this space. I want to do this. And so I'm going to create these avenues. And I'm going to go and do these things. And that's yeah. part of what having a Weibo or WeChat or a YouTube channel is all about. Yeah. Would you say that when sanity represented like the highest and lowest moments of your life? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for sure, like, you know, people talk a lot about Linsanity, but the time right before that and the time right after that were my two, like, lowest points in my life. Yeah. And I think, like, experiencing this tremendous roller coaster, like, I think has given me, you know, more than anything, like, it's helped my spiritual life so much. And yeah. I think that's been the coolest part. Yeah. The other areas that you're excelling in are you know, through a relationship with Quarterly, which is a subscription um, uh, product delivery-based service. Yeah. Um, and then you're also, as you mentioned earlier, involved in esports. Yeah. And uh, probably th- through interest, but also it sounds like a little bit of a calming down platform after games before you get to sleep or when you can't sleep like, like me. Um, with Quarterly, there is you know, the, the Jeremy Lin of, of the spiritual side that you get access to, um, the seasonal side, some mementos that you've, that you've gathered from road games and stuff like that. Why quarterly? And, you know, what have you learned from the subscription-based service, which seems to just be ubiquitous in all forms of content and product these days? Um, I just, I thought it would be something cool, um, something to try to, you know, get like, like a space to try to get into where it's like, it just I liked I like creative stuff and I've always been like you know, this is kind of embarrassing, but like I've always been I've always loved like arts, crafts, pottery, ceramics, like Me stuff too. like that, like the creation of stuff. And so like being a, being able to create like my own box and like put my own twist and flavor on it and like I I, I just think that's something that I like I really enjoy doing. I've always yeah. really enjoyed doing. And then also like it was a perfect tie into like my foundation because I wanted people because I noticed that like when you just say like hey here here's a cause everyone go online and donate like that's probably not the most effective way these days it's not but if I can create something where the fans are getting what they want which is probably a, a piece of my life or a piece of who I am and in doing so everything that we earned was donated to my foundation like you're kind of like both parties are kind of winning to some degree. Like the fans are getting what they want. And then like I get the support for my foundation, which like I don't really need, I I wasn't ever in it to like create like financial success for myself. It was more just like, I want to promote this idea of philanthropy, thinking outside of yourself, seeing other people who are in need and like, how can I find a way or develop a passion to really help these other people? Because there's always more people that are less fortunate. And like, I think that's, something that like is sometimes overlooked and i think like there's some things in culture at least in like that i've noticed as being an asian and an, and as being asian and american like seeing two different cultures i've noticed like philanthropy is a really interesting topic mm-hmm. can you talk about the jeremy lynn foundation and and ways that people can contribute i know you've done a lot of different projects and you've said that that is going to be, or I've, I've gleaned that that's going to be a big focal point of your legacy beyond basketball is serving kids who are underprivileged. Yeah. So, um, basically what we try to do is everything we do is with underprivileged children, but, um, we really try to help like every community that I go to, we try to find an underdog story. So, you know, that's kind of, obviously I have a heart for the underdog. Um, but like, let's say that, I come to, like when I first got to Houston, it was like uh, refugees and immigrants was an issue that was kind of swept under the rug or maybe need a little more resource, financial resource, or maybe need a little bit more exposure and awareness around that issue. Um, and so I feel like, you know, that's, that's basically what we try to do is we try to go to every single community and we try to find a way to support. And, you know, when we go to Taiwan or China, there's very different issues. Like the issues in Taiwan are very different than the issues in China. And so we just try to support and be a part of that. And like the one thing I've been doing recently is one day's wages campaign. Yeah. Um, just encouraging people, you know, for one of your, 
you know, one day's wage, basically give that up. And the th issue that we chose is, you know, girls empowerment. And that's kind of something that's like definitely an underdog story, mm -hmm. especially globally is like, how do you empower girls, young women to receive education and have more opportunities in life? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, one of our earlier uh, guests on the pod was Julie Foudy, who's written a book on, on empowering women in sports. And one of my favorite documentaries is, is Misrepresentation out on Netflix. Uh, but it's interesting you say that because when we were talking earlier about uh, Asian Americans in basketball and how those that are often leading that neglect are Asian Americans themselves. A lot of documentation in gender equality says that most of those that are hindering progress are women as well. Hmm. Um, and I just find that an interesting commonality, but, but one that, that I'm working on being more vocal around too is equality in sports, be it racial or just so generally socio, socioeconomic to gender, to religious based, uh, to sexual orientation. Um, and I think the, 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 the premise of the, of the modern athlete and why I'm, I'm lucky to sit down with you is it's not just about success on court, not just about... Um, you know, leveraging new media to control messaging, authenticity, but it's about thought leadership because uh, ultimately we we are positioned to to lead and yeah. and be a proxy through other people's experiences, whether they've had them personally or not on the equality front. And that's what you're doing through your foundation. Yeah, and I think that's you know, I mean, us as athletes, it's just fun. It's just interesting because. Society loves athletes because they love sports and then they love the people who can, you know, do things that maybe they could never do. Yeah. And so there's like this natural fanaticism that's created. But like, I've always thought like when I was younger, it was like, dude, my career is everything. Like my legacy, my career, my every, like how it turns out is everything. Now I really see my career as like, and like the jump start of what I hope to be when I'm done playing is much more impactful than anything I can do on the court. Yeah. And that's like, you know, that's kind of how I see my life as I'm thinking like more long-term is like this basketball stuff I love and that's what I'm super passionate about and it hopefully will give me a platform and then with this platform, hopefully I can grow it and keep growing it and then do things that I really want to see done in this world and like a lot of the issues that you've talked about, you know, and I, you know, I like, philanthropy and treating people the right way and mm -hmm. things like that like these are all like issues that i've been thinking about and even with esports it's like perceptions or like stereotypes on gamers it's like there are certain things that people think about it's like i know a lot of nba guys who play a lot of video games yeah. but like no one's looking at them being like man they're so like they're probably like these asian kids in their parents basement wearing glasses and like eating like ramen or something like that's like how people like sometimes people like make fun of gamers like it's like dude like you're i don't know it's like the stereotype that you have can be like broadened and like you can like rethink the way you're like thinking about everything it, right it, now. is your positioning with esports and team vgj is that yeah, right VGJ. is that more around you know your traditional endorsement but you are encouraging um you know lowering barriers around that it's it's very actually it's, I would say it's pretty non-traditional because like we're what we're trying to do is really establish like culture in an organization where you're caring for the athlete. Like I kind of know what it's like when like or the feeling of being like traded or like cut or like feeling like an organization like didn't have my back and but then like esports is like even worse because they're so young in the, as an industry. So like we oh. see a lot of the players getting exploited like the the impact that they're creating like they're not even coming close to being able to receive any of those benefits and i see like college like college athletes yep. are kind of similar like and people talk like i actually went and played at harvard i didn't even get a scholarship mm -hmm. you know and and there's other players who get scholarships and i still think they're not getting enough of what they deserve right. like because what the impact that they're creating and what they're doing for the university it's like like you know and so i think that's something that i want to do with esports is like help them like create this industry infrastructure where it's like we're going to treat people the right way like 
we're not just gonna tell you like you need to show up and play really well and win us this game. Like we're actually gonna care for you, your health, like your 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 eating habits, your sleeping habits. Like we want you to feel at home. We want you to be cared for. Like there's gonna be like open communication. Like there's gonna be open dialogue. Yeah. We want to be trustworthy. Like all these different qualities that we want to like instill into you know. Um, our team and, and at VGJ is kind of like so it's very non-traditional but really fun because yeah. I'm, I love esports and I love gaming. Yeah, it sounds like a great example of of you taking what you've learned and experienced in life and yeah. then helping now. Is it like more of like a management side that that you're assisting in, or just like thought leadership and you know with with VGJ and and how are you c- creating the the environment that that you want for these young players. So it's just sheer economic impact around esports. Yeah. I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I know that you look at the Ted Leonsis's and, yep. and the craft group and they're all spending millions of dollars and in investments in, into these organizations and the impressions are gigantic. Um, so, so what is your exact, like how, how are you able to create the environment? Is it just by sheer influence or you actually have stake in, in BGJ? Yeah, so it's it's more like how I would describe it is probably like kind of like a consultant. Got so it. there's me and my team that I like mentioned before in terms of like we try to help them. We try to introduce them to the right people. We mm-hmm. try to and then like I went and watched um, when they when they played at the summit, like I went and watched that, hung out with them. And it's like even as an athlete, I'm looking at their pregame routine, postgame the the mm-hmm. environment like how they communicate with each other like what are they eating how much are they sleeping travel sk- like these are the things that like I've learned so much about it not in esports but in professional sports so like I feel like I have at least like some advice that I could give to them and so it's kind of like this consultant type role um, where it's like and then we want like we want our manager and our coach to like be treating them the right way and we want the players to have fun being there and, yeah. and it's actually very similar to what the Nets are kind of doing like the Nets are like trying to create this family atmosphere oh yeah so they've done a ton huh yeah they've done a lot and investing in the properties and, and bringing in just terrific resources for the players right yeah yeah they, they're very comprehensive so so leadership is obviously a key pillar for you while we were talking your younger brother just walked in <laughs> and we were talking earlier about the impact that the family has had on on Jeremy and, and how thankful he is for everyone's support what uh what, what's what's younger uh, what's younger brother getting into and 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 what do you think uh what do you think his upside is um you know he's he's playing pro in taiwan and um you know he's been an all-star both seasons rookie of the year led the league in assists um and he's accomplished a lot in his first two years and um, we still feel like there's another step or two or three that he can take and we know that he's much more talented than what people see even though he's done and played really well, um, yeah. I still think there's a lot more for him. And so we've just been working. Um, we've been working. We've been talking a lot. Um, you know, it's it's fun working out with him and my trainer because we all, like, basically coach each other. Yeah. So he, if he sees something with my game, I see something with his game, or my trainer sees something with either of our games, like, we're able to just, like, hear another voice and opinion. And so... Um, he's just focused on his pro career out there and hopefully he continues to grow and, um, and, and do amazing things and, and yeah. kind of, you know, he's, he's young, so he's only going to his third year out of college. Yeah. So should be, should be fun. Yeah. Well, you guys, uh, were, were generous and kind to stop by here in Brooklyn and, and, uh, record this podcast with us. We learned a lot. What are you guys, uh, what are you guys up to the rest of the afternoon? What, what's, what's something to get into? We're both fairly new to Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any recommendations? Actually, we're just gonna explore. Um, yeah, you know, he's, uh, you know, I brought him, and then I have some other friends who are coming in, um, and they're all gonna meet, and we're just gonna explore the area, grab some good food, and kind of see what Brooklyn and and this Williamsburg area has to offer. Yeah, it's great, man. All right, best of luck this season, and uh, let's let's keep doing maybe we'll do another podcast soon because i'm sure a lot of people will, will like to hear more you got a lot of wisdom sounds good i appreciate it thanks, thanks for having me. me if you enjoyed the interview as much as i did jeremy's a tremendous human being i love how he positions loyalty atop any hiring process 
Loyalty for me equals trust. And for any startup, a shortage of trust throughout the autonomy of action is a short hop downhill. Surround yourself with people you trust, even if it's family times business. Join me and apparently the rest of the world in following Jeremy across social media. You can find him across all of his platforms. It's at jlin7. And be the first to listen to future episodes as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with legendary New England Patriots dynasty head coach Bill Belichick, world-class tennis star and entrepreneur Venus Williams, and NFLPA executive director D. Smith. And that's just to name a few. You can find all these episodes and more on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. And shortcut to our show notes, athlete lists, news and headlines, links to articles and books, visit suitinguppodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm actively welcoming your feedback and suggestions. You can tweet at me. That's at Paul Rabel. Also, if there are any sports influencers you think I should be going after, let me know. We're outbounding every day. Still early days, everyone. I promise I'll respond. Tweet at me. Talk to you next week.